and true American podcast style, but we, we, we speak a different language. Have you never been on a beach? I, I was on a beach in Egypt one time. I was sitting, I was like to my ex, what the fucking state of her? Know that, you know, I wasn't as enlightened as I am now, you know. But um, I was like, <laughs> look at it. And she was like, you can't say that, people. That and I was like, they're Russian. Like, they don't know they're what not. we're saying. Like, they get, even when you go down to England, you can get away with being like, see if you were to just go down there and fucking blah, 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 bleh yeah. People are just like, what did you just say there? Yeah. <laughs> I think that it's a weird one. See when I, I think most in English people do it for a bum up though. I That's what I was going to say. See when I worked well. in England, it's like when you're speaking normally to people, they tend to go, I don't know what you're saying, but then if you were to go, I think you're a fucking dickhead, they'd be like, stay <laughs> away. I know exactly what you're saying. I know what you've said. That's like Billy Conley, like the word fuck off, everyone understands it, no matter where you're at. If you just scream uh-huh. it, people will know. But yeah, I think when we were in Harris, that happened when, um, so we ended up hiking um, with two other hikers and one of them was from London and we were walking and lots of locals just talk to you. It feels like mm-hmm. you're just going back to what Scotland probably used to be like. And when I... So this was like the Hebridean way or something you were doing recently, winter. Yeah. yeah, sorry just to go straight into that, but yeah. <laughs> that was, was the first question of, anyway, just uh, to was, sort of kick off by chatting about... But accents were a big thing up there because uh-huh. all the islanders still speak. Um, really, they speak Scottish, but some of them are all, all Gaelic, but their accents are slower. Yeah, I like, think they sound really Welsh. Really slow, like that. They say curry, curry, and stuff like that. They don't, and they, they... I mean, my knowledge of Gaelic goes as far as like Donny Murdo, so I'm lost. But I, I, I Donny Murdo. What was Donny Murdo? Danger Mouse. Danger Mouse. Aye, ah. Danger Mouse and Gaelic. Do you know, remember uh, the guy that had the, what was Fuck's it, Janish? <laughs> the guy had the clappy, had the hat, that had the... Right. I do, aye, yeah. but I think that's probably guitar. like old generation, maybe. <laughs> yeah, and that's a shame though that Gaelic isn't a big thing anymore. And we talked mm. to a couple of locals about that, and and hearing it, it's getting kind of filtered down into the Highlands in some schools. And I think it makes we've you get the Gaelic school here just right there. right there. The Gaelic school in Glasgow is just at the other side of that that building on Cleveland Street. So, but it's the only school in Glasgow. It's like our sort of native tongue, yeah. and we're in Scotland, and we're in the biggest city in the country, and. We've got one school, yeah. and that's to cover a, probably a geographic space that's like nearly two million people. Right. So you're probably talking what like sixty people a year can oh, go and learn how so to sad. speak, and, and it's it, a beautiful, beautiful language. Yeah. Um, I had an ex that was from Lewis, and her uh, auntie was Christine Primrose, who's like basically like the Aretha Franklin, a sort of traditional scottish music all oh, right mm. she's done duets with like van morrison and she oh. goes to like america every year and nice and hang me but i you're, you're right it's like the heritage of it sadly seems to be sort of gone dying some you and know? you feel so much more connected with scotland when you can speak i think just by imagining what i would feel like if i spoke gaelic i mm. think because visiting all the islands has made me feel really connected with scotland much more yeah. than i used to feel kind of growing up where I grew up, I didn't see that side of Scotland. Um, I grew up in Livingston, right. which is, um, my mum moved there, went from the overspill of Glasgow, and then mm-hmm. I grew up there as well. And uh, it's just grey, masonettes, dark, cloudy, Aye. everyone thinks Scotland's shit. Mm-hmm. And um, I first went to Arran, uh, some of my family are from Arran, and um, I, I couldn't believe it, it was part of Scotland. And then I moved to Orkney, um, and yeah, I think I've just had a real connection with Ireland. So Orkney. Yeah. Right. What yeah. was it like living up there? Because gone for Livingston, even though, you know, I doubt that you would have anybody to be like, Livingston's a cosmopolitan, you know. I mean, we passed through Livingston on the way to a weekend away recently, and I swear to God, I thought the entire place was just one big, massive industrial estate. Uh huh. Yeah. 
but really going gloomy. for that, which is kind of like you're saying, like a satellite town that's got like a huge designer outlet and some factories to like Orkney, it must have been a bit of a shock. Is yeah. Orkney the one where you need to get a license to bring on another vehicle? They like limit the amount of cars that you're allowed. It's one of Orkney or Shetland. Oh, right. Yeah. Where yeah, if you want to take your own car, they're like mm. not at capacity. And unless mm. somebody takes a car off, you can't get one on. Right. Unless it's for like, you know, putting in broadband or yeah. you, like that type of thing. Yeah. But what it's was it like limited. going from um, Livingston to stay in Orkney? There's a bit of like a step in between. So like when I first left school, I left with like no qualifications and kind of didn't know what I wanted to do. And then found youth work and community work and community education um, and realised I could go back to study. And uh, loads of motivations for that, but mainly to change my and my mum's life. I didn't want to live in Livingston anymore. I didn't want to feel, it's just like, it's almost like a dark cloud when you live in that area, that's how I felt. Um, so then I went to college and I studied in HNC and then I got into uni, which was mind blowing. Um, I went to Edinburgh Uni, but halfway through the community course, I kind of decided that I wanted to go into more um, facilitating community work. And the uni course was kind of leading you towards kind of ideology and politics. And yeah. although that's a big part and you need to be equipped, it was making me feel less connected to the people I wanted to work with in a way. It was mm -hmm. like accents, coming back to accents. I was <clears> losing my accent. I was using, I was losing the language I used to use. I sound completely different to when I first started college and it wasn't a conscious thing, but it's just kind of developed over time when I've lost right. it. So then I swapped to do a sports studies degree in Stirling. And um, when I was doing Edinburgh, I actually lived with my mum still. And um, so I grew up just me and my mum. And then when so I went commuting, to- commuting, Livingston through Edinburgh for uni. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, and then I was also doing lots of community work on side of that. So work with re refugees, adult education, youth work, homework clubs, anything I could build experience up and confidence in and, mm -hmm kind of figure out what I wanted to do because I think that that's a constant journey figuring out what you want to do and I know yeah I always want to connect with people that's my main thing and I've just kind of evolved that in different things over time and um, so after Edinburgh I went to Stirling and actually moved to Stirling and that was a massive change your your environment is so huge to how you feel and and what you think you're capable of I think when I, I grew up in Livingston and um, I always felt a bit alien and a bit different I've always been really dweeby and I really connect like things and mm -hmm. and I've thought differently and um, I think the only time I really was able to express that was with my mum she's uh, really amazing and tells stories and and was able to help me um in school when I, I didn't know how to learn mm -hmm. I would come home and she would teach me things and be able to yeah make me understand things in a different way mm -hmm. so moved to Stirling and I think that Stirling just seeing what people live like in another area where it's calm yeah, yeah. Like, not everyone's not on edge not everyone's stressed and trying to pay bills and and every day their mind is absorbed with just trying to get by you go to Stirling and the, it's just peaceful you know there's mountains there's like water you're at university it was just my first introduction into that way of life and mm. I always felt like it was out of reach in a way when I grew mm. up. Aye. So do you feel like Livingston's very detached from nature? Is, is it a, na a nature thing? Um, it's probably a class thing. There's there's certain aspects or pockets like we've talked about and you've talked about yeah. in the podcast before. There's pockets of affluence where it's probably closer to green spaces. But where I grew up, it was just masonettes and council estates and there was like small, tiny woodland and stuff, uh -huh. but nothing to make you feel like like when you're in Stirling and you're near the, just where I live in my flat feels like I'm in nature in a way. Although mm. there's houses all around, just it feels different in a way. Like coming to Glasgow, you feel connected with people in Glasgow mm -hmm. differently than I feel when I'm in Edinburgh connected to people. 
it's just like I think different places have different feelings. Yeah, absolutely. And Do you like, feel like th- there's a part of that I really relate to, um, and it's like kind of sort of rejecting the place where you know don't like being like I didn't like being in the scheme and I think that as soon as possible you know I think there's no mistake that I love in the West End mm-hmm. but part of what's happened to me recently is is that I, as I've kind of sort of squared the circle of a lot of my mental health issues I've started to like reconnect I've started to like find myself being pulled back where it's like I start wearing skip hats like up until like six months ago it wasn't normal that I wore skip hats and it's been a wee bit of a deliberate thing where I've like, mm. I loved that when I was a teenager and I've rejected it in my twenties. So I'm going to go back yeah. and I feel like actually I want to go back to calm time more and see my mum more now as I've sort of like settled this idea of, you know, what you're talking about, like that environment and mm. different environments. I'm more able to go back and sort of see it for what it is and, and, and feel more comfortable in that environment. Is yeah. that something that you're getting yourself like you feel yourself getting drawn back to Livingston yeah and I think it's once you know the difference I think when you're like when I was like 17 and 18 I I didn't know what life could be like out with where I grew up you know we didn't travel a lot growing up and and um we'd we'd wild camp and stuff but I just didn't have the the kind of understanding of what life could be like out with that area Mm -hmm. but I definitely feel connected to that way of life and the people that are in that the the community that I worked in and my mum and and there's so much good that can't be dis- dismissed, dis- dismissed, grown up yeah, in those communities because, yeah, yeah, but you learn so much, you know, like I think that there was no way I would change how I grew up, even though there was mm-hmm. really challenging times that I wish my mum didn't experience. I think that when I look back at my childhood, there's nothing I would change, but I just wish my mum didn't have to go through so much stress. Um, but coming back to what you asked, I, I think I still always will feel connected to that way of life and I'd never want to change anything because I'm out it. I think that if I didn't get the opportunity to go to university or or move and, and go to Orkney and see what other parts of Scotland look like and just experience different things, I might have resentment over growing up in that area because mm-hmm. um, I realise a lot of the people that I grew up with didn't have the same opportunities. And and that's there's so many different factors to why that is. Um, and there was loads of barriers that, that kind of came up when I was you were one of them. You left school with no qualifications, like you said. You know what I mean? Yeah, I went to college, and then it was always my mum though that supported me. I feel like that when you have Mm. someone that understands struggle and understands that, like she, she always just pushed me to the things that made me happy. And working with people, thankfully, was one of those things. But yeah, I think that the people that I know that still live in those environments that couldn't move out and Mm -hmm. couldn't see the difference, like you said, you've moved and then you love coming back. They resent that and they feel the anger and the frustration when they can, because most of the time it's just getting by and they've not even Mm -hmm. got the headspace to think about that. But when they think about politics or the the way of life and and what they've grew up in, they start feeling angry because they feel like they can't get movement away from that, if Mm -hmm. that makes sense. Yeah, it's more being stuck than actually or being trapped in that environment. I think it's really interesting that you've managed to get to uni. Like, I think there's there's a lot of people that leave school without qualifications and that's it. You know, it's like, what, what did, you know, like even teachers in school, 
yeah. sort of like perpetuate that, you know, if you don't yeah. pass your exams, your life's done. Like, what are you doing? Don't fuck this up. And you're like 15. Oh, pressure. <laughs> my, my daughter's just finished up with it. Got her great exam results. We're really happy with it. The bitch beat me English. I was fucking raging. <laughs> um, I know, man. I was like, fucking bitch. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm proud of her, honestly. Yeah. Um, but I, it's a lot of pressure to put on young kids at that age to be yeah. like pure, decide the path of the rest uh, of your life at 15. You know, like, maybe no. You were saying that like your mum, but how did you sort of personally cope with that? Or did you even have that idea in your head that, you know, school, what what have I done here? School wasn't important to me. And and I'm like a different version of myself now than I was back then. A lot of people, if they seen me now, who knew me then would be like, wow. Because I was like, kind of not part of the young team, but part of that young team culture where we'd go mm. out drinking all the time. Mm-hmm. School was not important. All of our lunch money, if we got lunch money, was saved up for drink. It was just such a different culture and what was important. And if you thought about schoolwork, you were a dweeb, which I was secretly that with my mum. She would explain loads of cool things to me and they always stuck with me. I think everything started to make sense when I got diagnosed with dyslexia in uni. So I did my first ever exam at uni and I remember, I'll never forget this teacher. She said, on the exam paper, come see me after after we did the exam. And uh, I went to see her and I was like, I wonder what's wrong. She was like, have you ever been um, tested for dyslexia? And I was like, oh no, I haven't. And I looked at my exam and I didn't even realize I did this, but I have so many ideas sometimes, like so many. And sometimes, I, I um, especially in time pressured conditions, okay. um, I would like half write a sentence and then move on to the next one uh-huh. in case I would forget the next idea. Mm. But that is a clear, I didn't know, that was a clear indication of dyslexia because you've got so many different ideas that are coming together and anxiety with time pressure. So I would always just half finish sentences just in case I'd, so I ended up going to get tested and actually probably the one of the most traumatic experiences ever because it's like an hour and a half um, exam and it might be different across the board but mine was an hour and a half exam with a psychologist who it's basically an hour and a half of just getting everything wrong and it's a really you get a sense of failure when you come Mm -hmm. out I just felt so deflated I was Mm -hmm. like in first year at uni I was thinking I can't even do uni because all of the tests he's given me and and then they, they do a summary basically saying like he said, I don't know how Jen's managed to get this far. Because this was my second yeah. university experience. I'd already been to Edinburgh Uni for a year mm-hmm. and no one had picked it up, but that was because it was just essays. So this was my first exams in school. So yeah, after dyslexia, I started getting support. And then not only support, because I don't think the support really helped me. It was just understanding that I thought differently. And I could mm-hmm. write, I need to work out how I can formulate my ideas in a different way. So I think uni, getting to uni was the challenge, but actually figuring out how I, I learn and how I, so I've, I've really had to do more, a wee bit more maybe than uh, some students, like be up all night doing extra notes yeah. and doing certain things just to understand how I learn. Mm-hmm. It's been a That's strange I think it's crazy that you were that far into your sort of educational career and it had never been spotted, especially in this day and age. It seems like something that we're supposed to have like a, a better handle on than you know, obviously what you've experienced, like, I, I, I think that's crazy that somebody could get as far as, you know, through, as you say, an yeah. HNC at an actual, you know, Edinburgh Uni, you know what I mean, what? I was quite a disengaged student, though, in school, right. like in high school. Um, I was just, 
so disengaged. So that it, it probably because it was an exam, and and do you know what it's really helped? I wouldn't change it in in any way, mm-hmm. but it's helped me in so many ways. But especially working with young people, and um, I used to work at a homework club, and I remember working with this wee boy, and we, he was always disengaged. One of those classic boys that we hear about that's like just not doing anything in, in uh, class and gets like left outside and that mm. kind of thing. And no one wanted to work with him. Um, and I love working with him. I love chatting with him and lots of young people like that that I just connect with. Um, just because you just talk to them about things that they really enjoy mm-hmm. but this young person hated reading and he couldn't understand why you would need to I think I've talked about this on the podcast he couldn't understand why you would need to read and I remember just working through and I realized he had dyslexia just with the way he was he was talking to me and then he got um, a test in school and he got some extra support but I think we even maybe have talked about that in, in the podcast that I did with you because I remember thinking about it um, just because so many young people don't get the opportunity to because they get kind of labelled as a problem child. Aye, for sure. With all the other things that they, they probably have out going on out with school. Mm-hmm. It's I think, a, no. almost an excuse to write folk off because dealing with whatever's actually the issue is just too difficult or time consuming or whatever it is. And it's something that we see across many walks of life, isn't it? Yeah. Well, aye, absolutely. I mean, there's a few that are screaming out and I think like things like dyslexia are definitely one of them. Um, and I think it's, it's, I think that I'm sure we're more further forward than what when you were oh, diagnosed i mean how long has that been yeah years like 10 so in years. a decade hopefully we're further mm-hmm. forward For sure. but i think I, I i echo what was just said there to think that there's been young people over decades that could have been supported and learning how to learn mm. differently That's and it. not think that they're stupid like mm-hmm. it was just like you're saying people bad boys you know bad get, get them out of the yeah. class they're trouble and it's more well they might be troubled but I don't know if painting them as trub- trouble Aye. and giving yeah. them these labels is thick and stupid when in fact they've got like dyslexia and, and all you need to do is just make a small adjustment to how they learn Aye. and they can flourish. Yeah. That's that, that that's sad to me. But do you think that that underlying condition sort of held you back at school, made you disconnect into that sort of drinking and? If you're just thinking, what's the point of me doing, you know? Like- you internalise it. You think it's you. I think that's the biggest mm. like pattern that I see in my own life and, and other people that have experienced all sorts of things is you internalise it as you're the problem and you can't learn and it's you. And and I think that maybe it was the people I was around that maybe encouraged me to do the certain things that I did and I enjoyed it and also didn't think school was for me. Like I wasn't academic enough. I had that mindset, that pattern or that thought running through my mind. I actually just didn't find things that I really enjoyed learning. And I would go home to my mum. I remember the first time she taught me about evolution and she explained it in such an amazing way why all our bodies adapt and how skin adapts and eyes adapt because of the environment and I found it fascinating and I remember just like then after that just asking her loads of questions about lots of different things but when I didn't understand something at school after that I would come home and ask her about it and she just has loads of random facts about things in her mind so I think having her to bounce off and coming back to your your question um probably a mixture of that and just feeling like yeah I was the problem like it was me and school makes you feel like that if you don't learn in the the same way and you're probably right it's changed dramatically since then but I think the subjects still need to change because I've met loads of young people now in my job that don't do well in school but have so many amazing interests and flourish in music or and that's the biggest I think conversation in all of this creative types Mm -hmm. sensitive creative types Mm -hmm. that maybe don't fall into the normal structure of school and they're quite sensitive and compassionate and empathetic types often it comes with art if you've got like a create everyone's creative but if you're tapping into that regularly you're, you're often quite a sensitive person 
And um, I don't think that the school structure when I was younger fit quite well into that and supported young people yeah. that were going through I that. I mean, I think when we were getting ready to leave school like a million years ago, um, the, the chat felt like it was about sort of vocational education, like back to the old school days of like apprenticeships and stuff like that. And I, it seemed to make more sense to me at the time, although I was academically, you yeah. know, all right in that respect. But um, it was something that always made sense to me because I've seen so many mates that I grew up with and, you know, went to primary schools with and all the rest of it. We were just, you know, sitting in history class and they're sitting, you know, stabbing their horns with a pencil to keep yeah. them, you know, their mind occupied yeah. and that type of carry on. Um, but I don't know that that's ever went that way because I think, like your scenario, for example, like had somebody been able to get to you at a secondary school age and actually maybe explain some of the, like, the vocational stuff that you are now involved in or how to access them, maybe a bit more and a bit less on the academic side, maybe you'd have got, you know, where you were going, if, um, you know, a wee bit sooner, you know yeah. what I mean? Like, or felt like those options were there for you because I think that's what we all want when it comes to like an education is to have options, you know what I mean? Like, and so many folk, like you say, come out of the educational process and don't see them and you're like, so we now need to actually start talking their language, you know what I mean? Like, and I think that conversation was happening when we were getting ready to leave school, but I don't know personally that it's progressed an awful lot, mm-hmm. you know what I mean, in the time since. And it definitely comes back to the people blaming themselves and feeling guilt and shame around who they are as an individual rather than feeling supported and that they can do not anything that they mm. want to do because sometimes there are restrictions and barriers, but more... I, than, mean, I might have been an astronaut, but let's right. be real, you know what I mean? Right. Mm. Maybe I could become a billionaire. <laughs> but there are loose... Don't know which one's less realistic. <laughs> <laughs> probably both. Uh, I would right say there. probably becoming a billionaire, to uh, be honest. Uh, like, like, um, if you were to look at it statistically, the chances of any, anybody... In Glasgow, becoming a billionaire is probably less than Aye. anybody, even like, you know, my granny who's been dead for 30 years, becoming an astronaut. She's probably got a better chance of that. But um, I remember a, a, a school teacher, he said something really to me in sixth year that was like, I remember like really stressing about higher maths exam in sixth year. And he, he just took me aside and he was like, this means nothing. What? He was like, I went back and got my master's in mathematics mm-hmm. when I was 50. And I was like, oh, wait a minute. And he was like, see this? He was like, fucking. It was like my the greatest gift of my worst enemy because then I started to be like, I can just fuck about. Like, this right, doesn't this actually, doesn't you know, but he, he he was right. He was so right. He was like, you're stressing about this maths exam, mate. Like, what you do? You're going to uni anyway. You've got an unconditional offer. Like, you're just, whatever this is, just let it go. And yeah. actually, even if you go to uni and you fuck up, you can go back later. I did that. And, you know, you would think that this guy would be giving you the usual sort of, stick to your exams, go to uni, find your, your yeah. trade or find your way and this is how you'll do it. But he was actually... But then he's found that way to speak to you in your own language, just exactly what we're talking about and has actually made, yeah. you know what I mean, a difference to your approach on it, you know what I mean? Just took as me about a decade as, to... As much as he's also now so realise it fucking fully. scumbag. Aye, aye, absolutely. <laughs> but it took, took me about 10 years to actually come to be like, that guy was so right, you know what I mean? Like, even when I was in my late 20s, early 30s and thinking about going back to uni, I was like... God, like what am I going to be like? That meme with Steve Buscemi in the skateboard, you know, like turning up to uni, pure alright kids, like hanging about, trying to use buzzwords with them. But <coughs> I think that's just self defeating, and I think yeah. a lot of that sort of culture um, that existed, even I don't even think it's just school because I think it's even just parents. You're talking about like the creative process. I've mentioned this podcast so many times that when I wanted, I said to my my parents, I wanted to be a musician. They were like, do you sure you don't want to go and pursue management at McDonald's? Because I was working at McDonald's at the time. 
Now, like, if uni's no for you, that's fine, but you should, you know, start on the ground floor somewhere. I and it was I can remember being so deflated by that, just thinking, is that what I've I've got? Is that the choices I've got? Uni that I hate, McDonald's that I hate. Or, you know, uh, you can do that part-time, but you you shouldn't put your, don't put your eggs in. And, you know, it was almost like really, that's fucking shit. You know what I mean? Surely encouraging creativity. I think yeah. that that's, but I think we live in a world, unfortunately, where the arts are kind of undervalued. Underappreciated, for sure. And mm -hmm. it's so crazy to me because there's so, so much to gain from appreciating people that are creative and, and art itself and the journey. And I think that, if we could tap into it more for mental health recovery, I'm really for that. And um, just getting people in all sorts of ways because people he <clears> that are not creative, because I think everyone's creative, but a lot of people say I'm not creative. It's a bit like when you say to someone you run, they're like, oh, I'm not a runner. It's the instant response because we relate things to our lives. But creative is something that a lot of people either do or don't do in their own mind, although everyone can do it. Mm -hmm. But I think that cre creativity across the board, and I think conversations are creative. I think writing your ideas down or creative drawing, all all different ways of having an outlet to share mm -hmm. your ideas. That's it, having an outlet to share how you feel and tapping into flow state, which is not always possible. But if you can try and do certain things, I think that it's so good for our mental health. I think having an outlet with someone or by yourself that allows you to tap into creativity is so healing and cathartic. It's not the answer and it won't transform mental health but mm -hmm. recovery, but it'll really help Aye. support it. Like even in just the base sense of like conditioning your brain to think another way, it's productive in that mm -hmm. respect. I mean, because if you're in, and as I have been recently, you know, in a sort of really bad spell of mental health, what your brain forms really negative patterns. And I think when you take that moment to think creatively or, you know, draw write music whatever the fuck it is that it takes that pattern and it shakes it up you know yeah. what i mean like, and it's yeah. good for at least if you use it for nothing else for interrupting that negative mm. pattern i think i think to be honest yeah. with you like, yeah we should give ourselves permission more often and write how you feel in the moment truthfully is really hard to do like i've come writing as a creative outlet um, because that's something that I try and do a lot more of, especially when I lived in Orkney. That's when I really started to journal. Because the reason I moved to Orkney was after my first period of depression, which I was not used to experiencing as, as low as I did feel. Um, I grew up with mental health in my family and I also often thought because I was aware of it, I could almost resist it. Mm. And then, um, which mm. is not true, but you convince yourself that that could be the yeah, truth. Absolutely it's true. It's I like think denial. It, it's, it's true short term. Like yeah. you can resist against it on a very, very short term basis. And if somebody's got like a huge project, for instance, or they've got like a uni oh, course in the last year yeah. and they find themselves in the sort of pits of depression, maybe even resisting against it for a short period of time might be the right thing to do and not fully engage it when you've got this big, massive body of work to do. But you're right, like, you can only go so far. Like, yeah. it's, I use, with clients, I use a bucket and say to them, like, you're filling your bucket and you can, you, there's manageable levels, but see, as soon as you hit that top of that bucket, like, that's mm -hmm. it. Like, you need to let some out and how are we going to let it out? And it. actually trying to teach people how to journal is like the bane of my life because I'm a highly creative person. So I naturally can just pour, just let it just pour out and, mm. um, actually getting people to engage with that yeah. and getting them saying like just write just just let your mind go don't judge the words don't Relax judge the feelings it. just let it flow That's out it. of you um and it's really funny that you talk about like so the, the type of therapy that i'm currently doing when i go to train 
I do training um, on Zoom, unfortunately, because I don't stay in California, but uh, for two hours a week. One did. Was that? One, One day. day. And I don't even know if I'd like to. I don't even think I'd like to stay there. But um, the biggest thing that I get back, and we're all therapists, so I'm speaking in a, in a Zoom call with like between 10 and 20 other therapists mm-hmm. who have all got way more experience than I have. And the biggest thing that I'm always talking about is that therapy is a creative process. And I can't tell you, you, you can't get, a way of if they say this, you say this. That's not how it works. Aye, it's been it's in no the binary. moment. There's no like answer response to it. Uh, it's been in the moment and navigating that, and it's that's the same as writing music. If you were to go, if I go from A to here, it will say, "Ah, oh, yeah, great." That's how all the shit throwaway pop music's written with these mm-hmm. formulaic: do this, do this, yeah. then this, then this. But actually, all, all you've the, actually got is problem solving. You, yeah, you, you've got I, to all, think round corners. Yeah, all the great stuff comes from this flow state that you're talking about and this sort of natural. And sometimes the things that don't normally work is the thing that works yeah. in the specific circumstance. Mm-hmm. And the guy that I study with says the biggest barrier that he gets with therapists is getting them to hear the music of therapy. Mm-hmm. And he, he talks about how it's like writing a song, but where another person giving you the lyrics and you're then okay. putting the music to it. And it's it's a really interesting concept it's because it's always way. when I get to that point, what do I say? Right. And he's right. always like, I don't know. Yeah. I, I can't tell <laughs> you what to say. You need to let go of that part of you that's trying to say, find out the right yeah. thing to say in this moment. Aye. And he talks about how you need to let your ego die. And that's it, and be like, natural with it and try and not judge yourself in the moment. With any creative process, if you start judging yourself or thinking too much about what you're writing, you're putting on hurdles. And I think mm-hmm. the same with probably therapy and podcasts and all these things. As soon as we're more aware of ourselves and who we are and what we look like and all these things that make us feel anxious or sometimes can make us feel anxious, um, it, it stops the creative process and that's where resistance comes. And I really like um, Julia Cameron's Morning Pages. She talks about, it's a writer who uh, did The Artist's Way and she talks about a lot of different things but like procrastination with writing and trying to get into writing if you're you're coming up against resistance. If you're not like you're, you're saying some of your clients are maybe not used to journaling and sharing how they feel and they can't be fully honest with themselves or they don't even know how to write. She says that morning pages, as soon as you wake up, when you're in that kind of fuzzy headspace where you don't know what's kind of going on, you still remember a wee bit of your dreams and stuff, reach over, get your pad and just write. And then that allows you, like, there's no filter or kind of expectations. Mm. You just write all the stuff that's in your mind. And and I think it's really funny because when I used to do that or when I've not done it, there'll be moments where you think you'll remember things and then they just dissipate. Like, you know, when you wake up and you're like, that was such a strange dream. I'll write that down at one point or I'll talk about it and it just disappears. So I think it's been really cool for that just to remember certain mm-hmm. things. But yeah. it's a nice practice to get involved in just to stop judging yourself and even write the, rip them up after you've done them. Mm-hmm. It seems like such a pointless process, but actually being honest with yourself about what's going on in your mind. Like when you're saying when you're going through that hard time, when I was journaling, when I was in Orkney, I couldn't believe that I was carrying all this weight, this baggage in my mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I just started, I got one point where I was just every day writing at night. So I would be working, I would. I walked a lot of the, the Orkney Islands. I walked basically all of them and I camped on all the mini islands <laughs> um, and did a lot of walking around there. But I always had um, at night where I would just write for for hours and it was weird because sometimes I'm like I don't even have anything to say and I've just start and it would all come out and I've I've not journaled to that extent ever again but it was almost like I was going through a lot of healing and recovery and finding out about myself 
and I, journaling was a really good part of and I've never read it again mm. either I wouldn't want to maybe at some point but um yeah it was just like what I needed in the, the moment mm-hmm. and I don't even feel urge to go back to it because like you're saying the process was more important like the counseling process it's not often what you see it's the synergy and the energy and what happens and the full process of it all yeah, together. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that that's the part of <clears throat> which I'm finding a lot of success with people is because funnily enough, I've done sales for like 15 years. And so there was a part of me that people would always get sent up for the head offices and be like, what's this guy doing? Cause I was always like a top sales guy and really and truly what I was doing was just talking to people. Mm-hmm. I just had this natural ability to sort of just connect very quickly and build rapport and, they can tell you how to do that on paper, but you 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 need to practice it. You hundred percent need to practice it. You need to yeah. get yourself out of your own head. And uh, that's that's an interesting take. I think that that sort of creativity and and like that early morning thing. And I've got this pure insatiable obsession with being able to channel that and just be able to bring it up like that. Like listen, reading like um, it's the boy that wrote the guy that wrote um, Twin Peaks, David Lynch. Mm-hmm. He wrote a book called Catching the Big Fish, and it's about how do you channel creativity? How do you get out your own way? It's only your fear that will stop the flow. Whatever you want to do, you can do it. Um, And he's about sort of wee practices to get yourself into a flow state and sort of when you start to think, just detach yourself from your thinking and stuff like that. So I really love flow state, and I'm get this pure mission to sort of find you know how do we do it how yeah. how do you utilize it because if you can grasp that i think you can grasp anything yeah. it's and it kind of connects with hiking i mean i've been really conscious of that as well because i really love being creative and i think that i'm i can be my best self in those moments where i can tap into that and i i'm trying to think where i enter that space more and it's after hiking or during hikes like the long distance trek we just did you enter a weird rhythm where you're just connected with nature it's almost like your body's just so used to walking eating and sleeping and you're just like surrounded by nature and you've got a big heavy bag but you almost can't even feel it your feet are sore but it's like you enter this weird headspace where all other external pressures a bit like going back to growing up in a working class community where there's all these external pressures that prevent you being your best self I think that in just normal worlds we're we're kind of overwhelmed with technology and all these things that add layers onto who we are Mm. and we forget who we are and on the inside and that's when the judgment starts to come and like you're saying people are judging themselves when they're trying to be creative it's all the layers and I think when you enter nature or really into aromatherapy and I always use aromatherapy or music that allows me to tap into or exercise and finding those moments after doing something like that or during something it really allows me to tap into it much easier mm-hmm. you ever heard Eckhart Tolle talk about that sort mm. of connection with nature and, and he's basically like he gets this question a lot I mean I live in a big city and I don't get this connection with nature and he's like your I nature people romanticize it <clears throat> but your nature <clears throat> at both like, ends of the the spectrum like obviously when you're talking about that desire to go back to calm time and you're talking about that desire to go through Livingston to like Orkney and then back to the Hebrides again there's clearly like a a recurring theme about and seeing some of the pictures you're I mean it was wild it couldn't be further removed but I think like we all romanticize either side of it a wee bit sometimes you know what I mean like mm. I love being out in the the country myself I love mm. being in the city I don't think personally I could separate the two like I think each has got their own sort of place and time that I enjoy you know what I mean? absolutely like, his, I, his thought is is that like well you are nature and if you if if external factors are bearing down and you go within 
Mm. You can just shut your eyes and you can just breathe for and half an hour and you can, and that's called grounding. And then he talks about how yeah. grounding is nature. Yeah. But he had a, a good one where he was like, just stare at the sky. If you really want to go into nature, yeah, like you can just look up because that sky's, you know, like the yeah. perspective of what you're seeing and you see the same thing. And I found that quite, quite a comforting thing. But I, I, there's a connection between the flow state and what he talks about is grounding and if you find yourself being overwhelmed by your surroundings and your environment if only we could teach people for like a baby to be able to shut their eyes mm-hmm. take 10 deep breaths and sort of connect with their inner self mm-hmm. why are you feeling so overwhelmed what's going on and that's kind of what journaling you, you know that's what journaling's yeah. doing you're getting this internal monologue that you might not even be aware of. I mean, when I first started journaling and I was writing stuff, I was thinking, I'm not even thinking this. And then you realize to trust the hand because it's telling you something that you might not even be aware of. Like, I I think that there's nothing more powerful than speaking. But there's even, if you're going to speak to yourself, the best way to do it is on paper so that you can read it back. And and read it back, but also try and be as honest as you possibly can Mm -hmm. with yourself. And that's sometimes really hard. To, to let go of the judgment and think mm-hmm. and coming back to the romanticized thing I think you just take however whatever is going on in your mind with you in a wee bag anywhere you go and I've said that before like it doesn't matter where you're at it could be the most like like that's what people romanticize retiring and being on a beach and, and enjoying life and it's mm-hmm. like well you'll take all the shit with you so I I, I, I agree and I would love to spend like Wipe six off then right? it's just like sick I would love to spend like six months on the islands and six months in the city nice and have that combination but I think you probably do take everything with you and coming back to the ground and I really want to get into EDMR therapy have you heard a lot about so the lights yeah yeah I sensitize Mm. so before they they do any of that work they do six weeks of grounding this is the stuff that's used to deprogram PTSD or something like that yeah all sorts of trauma yeah, and they're using it a lot more. They don't have it available in the NHS at the moment, but a lot of the young people I'm working with would really benefit, and I know a couple that are going through it. Mm-hmm. So I'm learning like firsthand how their experiences have been. And they do a lot of grounding so that a lot of it is triggering because you're you're having to go back into different experiences to then let go. That's what the thought is. If you yeah. go back into the experience, then you're, you're able to let go and move on in yeah. your life. So they do a lot of grounding work to kind of plant seeds to support that and let in case triggering things do come up. So they do a lot of um, all sorts of ground practices where you, you count to 10, you breathe and um, put your feet in nature, all sorts of things <clears> so that you can support yourself, maybe out with the counselling session as well, which is hugely important because you might open yourself up in all sorts of therapy and then go back into your normal life and not know where all this angst coming from, mm-hmm. but you've just opened up loads of stuff. That was yeah. my first experience of therapy. Um, I had my first ever experience before I went to Orkney um, and it was six weeks of talking therapy. I just felt so drained and overwhelmed and I had nowhere to channel all the overwhelm. I was dreaming loads of dreams because mm-hmm. I was like reliving a lot of things and I didn't have anywhere to channel or I didn't have enough understanding of what was going on either. Yeah. So you were just sitting with all this stuff that you, you'd pushed down to not think about. And now it's here and what do I do? And yeah. it wasn't CBT or anything that I, I could channel and change. It was just now I've got all this awareness that I was potentially pushing down. Yeah. So mm-hmm. the the EDMR is really interesting. I've heard loads of really cool examples. One, Jamila Jamila explained that she had slept with the light on until she was about 27 every single night. She was mm-hmm. just really, it was just a normal thing. She would put the light on and go to sleep. And she was like six weeks into the EDMR and didn't notice and woke up the next day and her light was off. And it had, she didn't think it was working as well. Every mm. session she would come out, she was like, this is doing nothing. 
and then she, who knows if that's connected maybe other things in her life yeah, are changing she, I, I, I'm, I, I'm quite skeptical about things about like that it. because I think one they've never reviewed it so there's like no scientific evidence that it's working mm. and how much it's placebo um, and placebo is real you know placebo is yeah. a real thing but things like light therapy tapping like the tapping yeah rhythms music like these things they have a placebo effect on the body and i think that and i and i don't know i've never i've got no experience it personally but i've got a very skeptical head when it comes to things like lights but what and, do you think about music and chanting and stuff so That's yeah clearly healing and yeah rhythms running yeah. like the, the yeah. rhythm are running and these things they've got they have things, vibrations that go through your body. Um, and I think that the lights might even tap into that in some way. And, and when I say placebo, I'm not being dismissive because um, drugs are placebo. You know, like they, some drugs don't even change the chemistry. They just have this uplifting effect. And it's because the, people's ex the people are expecting it and they're wishing it. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like hypnotherapy in that sense. Hypnotherapy is deep relaxation. That's yeah. it. <laughs> so it's like you get in a relaxed state. You feel comfortable with the person you share your experiences and i think that that's where the power is but yeah definitely you know? and we should tap more into that i think there's like you're right it could be placebo and but it shouldn't be discredited and, I, I'm, like, many, I, I, and like I'm using the word people... could deliberately there because i don't know but it's when people make claims right. about things that have never been sort of measured right. there's no scientific, scientific measurement data. of yeah. How does this actually impact? What is the what is the important bit so that you can actually mm -hmm. get to the bottom yeah. of how like for me the the MDMA is way more an effect like uh, feels like something more real if you know if you know what I mean like I think yeah. that when I've I've looked at things like um like that that light therapy it sort of screams of like nonsense. Mm. But then <laughs> you know you think, I mean? like, if you think where we're at in Scotland at the moment for which one is more plausible, the shit thing is it's probably EDMR because like we're so far behind in what we oh, think yeah, about drugs. Oh yeah, and what we're going to get to first. You know, and, and also like yeah. safety and under understanding of drugs in comparison to, to America even or in lots of different places, what you think is a viable thing to push mm. towards. And if you say that the connection and the relationship you have with the person is what makes the change, we should just be promoting that more anyway because yeah. people are feeling so disconnected and alone anyway. Uh -huh. So if that's the outlet, maybe the cost and all the shit things that are involved that prevent people accessing it um, is the barrier and that shouldn't be the thing because we all need connection. I think we've said just... in the past as well, like if it works for you, it works. Absolutely. Right. You know what I mean? Oh, like... for sure. I think that for, for the purposes of this conversation, it's more... Um, Sort of obviously like two mental health professionals sort of going and, and gaining their opinion on, on on something, but but it's One good, mental health victim. But it's good to have it's good to have that objective thing because I do have a tendency yeah. to be very like hmm, you know yeah. like very skeptical and also about how much is this to sell and snake oil to rich people? Right. What what part of this? What is the actual important part? And I suppose that's my own. Uh, I've got a lot of worry about, you know, a CBT bullshit and, you know, mm -hmm. that sort of thing. But I suppose the, the thing that, the, the reason that I've got confidence in what I do is because I measure it. Yeah. People give me percentage ratings before and after sessions and I can go, where is their progress? And I can chart it. Whereas with things like that, and, and it's almost just like, well, you're, I don't know. Yeah. Like, but what I do know for sure is that they've never measured it. You know, I, I, I remember when I, I listened to Jamila Jamil talk about it and I was like, fuck, well. That must be brilliant.
but that's probably where we you know. differ in terms of who we are um, and in some aspects because I am more connected with like energy and, and I believe more in psilocybin therapy but I just think of like mm -hmm. we're like me and Villies had a lovely debate when we were doing the Hebridean Way we were hiking with another guy from Ireland and we were talking all about psychedelics and the power of healing and all mm -hmm. these things and and I had mentioned, Villiers was listening to our debate about um, how I'm scared that pharmaceutical companies are coming in and, and taking over the trials in America because, like, what happens then? Do they mass, like, what is the power? Does it change the the environment of what it could be? For example, like, um, all of the other plant medicines back in the day were taken with shamans and a ritual and the power of that in comparison like in addition with the drug it was like all the ritual it's a bit like yoga where yoga and its roots is completely different to the western world and what it's experienced in a, yeah. in a fitness class and there were so many kind of so many different traditions that were lost in the way of that yeah um, and that's because it's been commercialised and changed i are going to get the same spiritual experience if we crack open a 20 sheeter Right. MDMA microdose or uh, psilocybin That's or exactly whatever the stuff is, the, the jungle yeah. shit. And Billy's uh, argument was it will it'll get to more people faster. Ayahuasca. Ah, <laughs> the, the jungle, jungle shit. shit. <laughs> right, okay, <laughs> aye, the jungle shit. The good shit. As I say, two medical professionals, one layman. But that's right. it, we need it all. Because all of us can benefit from plant medicine and I don't understand why there's like, category there's not enough categories around drugs and understanding around drugs a lot of people still think psilocybin is not a good thing and mushrooms yeah are, so it's like i think you know i've had plenty of experience of taking these things um over the years and i've took them with two different intentions as well one of them is to enjoy myself or to like enhance an experience and another one is to heal and i think when you do the sort of shaman ritual you've got a different intention uh, and it can be good and it can be bad like these substances, they're not all good or all bad. No, Weed is not all good or all no, bad. Nothing um, is. But what the difference between things like plant medicines, such as like you're talking about like psilocybin, um, ayahuasca, my opinion on it and my experience is, is that it removes your ego. So the thing that stops you from connecting with these traumatic experiences and how people have these up euphoric uplifting experiences is because you shift your consciousness like the, one of the first times i took a big dose of mushrooms i can remember just thinking this is all nonsense why am i ever worried about anything and when i come out the other side i carried that with me but like the dream that you described over the course of years it sort of dissipated in it's the no, you're not judging yourself exactly so what what yeah. in these trials Jensen. and what i've read and, and <clears throat> is that what happens is is that these drugs facilitate a state so if somebody has a traumatic experience and you get a therapist that's like, sit down and speak to me about that experience, they start to panic. They start to get, oh my God, they get taken back in almost uh, like a mental time warp. But when you take like MDMA or psilocybin, that part of you gets removed and you can just speak openly and honestly and you're guided through it by... I think in my experience with MDMA, you kind of stop talking, if I remember right. So you um, tell people things that you would never ever right, speak, so tell like them ever. Up. So you just basically become this open book. Mm. Mine was and in a non-medicinal setting. Yeah. <laughs> it was butterfly. So that's uh, that's kind of like my view on it okay. of like that, which is different from like sort of light and how that can, I just don't know, I suppose. I think it's something you need to be ready like, for. So it's like, because how do you, how does that my change? previous experience of psychedelics was that I mistakenly doubled hunted and sat up all night watching scrubs and then had to phone in sick the next day. And I think, you know, as much as everybody else's experiences are different, 
But I don't think I was ready for that type of experience when I experienced it. And it's been something that has had that sort of really negative, mm. like, because obviously we've had the conversation before and I've been like, man, no, that is kind of like the line for me. Mm-hmm. And it's because my previous experience with the psychedelics right. when I wasn't like ready for that type of experience was just absolutely horrific. So that's what I'm you know talking I mean? about, like the, in, the intention. Aye. In the, the intention and what do people get out of this? I've, I've got somebody in mind and I won't name them. It's two Kayahuasca, he's still a knob. <laughs> didn't I change who, I think one I know bit. who you're talking about. <laughs> right? Did, and did it's he be- film it? It's beca- yeah, and yeah. it's because it's to perpetuate their media career. An ego. Why like are they doing it? Before, and it yeah. It's for other people and so not they, themselves. They don't get that real yeah. deep meaningful that people go there looking for this connection and then they find it through these shamanic experiences. And I think that there is definitely 100% stuff that we we need to take for the old world should we call it like these shamanic experiences and things that you get in like the forest mm-hmm. and nature and we need to uh, well we don't need to but i think we could try and sort of combine it and i think that's what this type of therapy is doing but mm. i'm with you when you synthesize something i think you ruin it mm. and um i've never took ayahuasca but i've smoked dmt um and what people describe to me as an ayahuasca experience is nothing like what i experienced mm. on dmt but it's a synthetic well, it's the chemical compound yeah. made in a lab. So it's similar, but it's not uh, the same. And I think right. that I'm with you. I'm worried that people are going to take psilocybin that you can grow. It changes it. And, and try and yeah. turn it into like, oh, you, you just take but Even NASA were talking about it the other week. NASA were talking about the efficacy of like using mushrooms as a means to produce. And, you know, part of that was like, what kind of level of psilocybin are we going to allow to like exist as these you know essentially mushroom farms are used to like travel the the, the universe sort and of thing and mushroom like, farms you're just think that's what i was scared of i love the idea of just like i heard recently a, a podcast and it was talking about psilocybin in ireland and it, it interviewed them um, a couple and they they were this guy was just on this big field known for mushrooms and he went over and had a wee word with them and they were like 80 oh we've been coming here for years it's how we connect with each other every single october just there every year that in my mind and it's romanticized for sure like you explained before but i just think of mushroom farms and it changes the message and the meaning Mm. but healing in all aspects is so important from all the things that we've Mm -hmm. experienced and like you said before like the setting the setting when you take on anything new any therapy or plant medicine or anything is so important because there's negatives and positives to all of them Mm -hmm. and your intention and what you go into because we always hear other people's experience before we go in to do things and Mm -hmm. then it sets expectations it's also the fact that my head was an absolute bin fire at the time so you're taking (laughs) all the stuff that you were going through and it's just perpetuating it all absolutely Mm -hmm. i'm really interested in this as far as plant medicine is concerned just how your intention shapes your experience with it it's like what Mm. like people can smoke weed to disconnect but i've found weed to be a very introspective drug and actually when i smoke it i, f- I feel everything's more mm-hmm. so if i'm feeling a wee bit anxious mm-hmm. and i have a joint it, i'm more anxious if i'm feeling a wee bit depressed i have a joint i'm more depressed yeah. if i'm feeling happy if i'm feel- i'm more happy so it's, it's a strange one how your intent what what do you want to get for this and i don't think there is any absolutely any coincidence that these things grow in the ground i think they were meant for us to take these things mm. with different intentions and we'll get different things i think we spoke you know? to dan you know especially when it comes to things like thc and the cannabinoids and stuff like that they're an intrinsic part of our biochemistry you know what i mean like it's not a coincidence that plants 
as a result of evolution have adapted to be needed by us in that respect. Do you know what I mean? Like because, you know, our body requires these chemicals to actually like function properly in a lot of respects. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. not completely obviously, but as I say, that conversation we had with Dan about the actual biochemistry of like cannabinoids and stuff was like enlightening in a way that mm. like just it was crazy. I was like, this is already in my body. And he's like, aye, it's already like your body yeah. needs this to process right. shit. Like it's already there. DMT in the brain, you know, like the pineal gland holds like a, a dose yeah. of DMT. And, and I think that, that that tends to be the case quite a lot of times with any sort of <clears throat> natural drug that we get these sort of natural highs from is that the actual chemistry of it is present. I think it's ironic that two of the things that we probably need to like change were somewhat sort of puritanical notions eh, is mental health and the understanding of things like drugs and stuff mm-hmm. like that and how the two of them can interact on a much more you know, useful basis than maybe we're used to speaking about. Yeah. I mean, but they're obviously both subjects that make even now still a lot of people really uncomfortable. So actually like pushing yeah. the two together and saying that drugs that you already have a really negative outlook on can actually have a positive effect on somebody's life is like an idea that's just going to slam with so many people that it's not even funny. But I think that's where, you know, the focus needs to be for some folk. Because yeah. again, no for everybody. Like I say, I don't think microdosing and stuff like that would have been ideal for me to this point but i get that they work for other folk you know what i mean so mm-hmm. the conversation needs to be about me growing up and less like mm, drugs are bad and i think that like plants in general have so <clears throat> much more to offer us than we've even tapped into and that's why i keep on calling it plant medicine because drugs it's just got a shit connotation towards and like it how is. much worse can you be microdosing psilocybin or dmt than you know getting pushed fentanyl or you know whatever right. else is out there they know that you know, legally allows you to manage pain and anxiety and all these other things that are just, you know, sort of toxic for us. Yeah. You know what I mean? When I first was diagnosed with depression, um, I know that's a random segue, but it was to do- it's towards plants. Mm-hmm. Um, I was given antidepressants and uh, remember Villiers, because it was only me and Villiers that knew about it. He was actually the one who encouraged me to go to the doctors. I definitely would have not gone if he didn't like pull me along basically yeah. like we're getting the bus i just wanted to hide all the time i think it's always the way the first time right so i'm just lucky enough to have somebody to push us on the bus mm-hmm. i wouldn't have gone without uh, it for no. sure i think that there's just an unconscious fear of what what's in there mm. just this sort of like you know i've 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 had so many clients that when i tell them about the process in the first <laughs> session you know you're going to need to face your fears and you're going to need to journal and let this inner monologue out as we've been talking about earlier sometimes I see the fear of God in their eyes and it's this idea that this is what's been causing me all this problems and now you're going to try and get me to sort of go into it and and Mm. so even going to the doctor is a step towards finding out what and if there's something there and being prescribed a drug and it's all just very overwhelming I think I mean I I was told at 19 um by a university counsellor that they suspected I was bipolar mm. and I was like okay thanks for your advice and then I spent like six maybe seven years running for it and it was until I got with Stacey and you know there was the being on the horizon and stuff that I was like right okay let me fucking at least try and sort this out yeah. and went to the GP the first time again because Stacey basically okay. fucking made me you know what I mean like, and uh, hearing the term you're depressed for the first time was like devastating mm. and it's only in like subsequent years like now that i can look back and like i don't get why that was so devastating because yeah. i knew 
for that entire six, seven year period that that was the case. Yeah. But having somebody actually sit you down and be like, right, yeah, so yeah. here is what it is, is like, I, it was like horrible. And you know, I don't think it was about me. I think it was, what's strange is growing up with a single mum, make, I think I've, I've come to this conclusion, it's very similar to growing up in Scotland as a guy. And this is really, stay with me because it sounds really strange. Okay. But I think, and not in all ways, but this one way where you're drilled, kind of conditioned to be stoic and have strengths, inner strengths than you might not have when you've got a full family. Yeah. Because my mum had to take on all of the things mm. be a diy be a she made me a bike she uh, had to she helped me learn you know mm -hmm. like every single thing she laid the carpets in my house she painted the walls she put tiles up she was everything and through her own struggles but she never she was never able to really share that because she was in the momentum of of just getting by mm, yeah and i think that when i first realized something wasn't wrong i was more scared about like it was a sense of letting her down because she had tried so hard. So I think it was probably, I was scared to find out the answer, but I was also scared to let her down because I knew she tried so hard to like support us when we were growing up that yeah. I didn't want to let her down. And and I think it's connected to Scottish men because Scottish women, when they, they grow up as single mums, have to be strong. Yeah, yeah. I was they thinking they, they on, need like, to be the man and the woman. So all they need of it to be in one. So I felt that continually when I was growing up mm. and we were always a team we would always just share everything and do everything like financially and all these other things so when I thought something was not quite right with me it was almost like I felt like I let her down and then going to the doctors would have been that confirmation that I was not okay anymore and yeah. and that was I was at university I was working a night shift I was doing running I was running a lot I was uh, running with the university team and with a, a trail running uh, team so there were so many things that combined to that moment it was burnout for sure that yeah. led to that but it was almost like I was trying to do everything to to support us that message that I've had to unlearn but that would have been a failure, I think, when I was going to the doctors that day. Yeah. But when I was prescribed the, the antidepressants, I, I, I was like to Villiers, um, can I try all the plant stuff before I take them? And if, if I still feel this way, I promise you I'll take them. So that was when I moved to Orkney. That was like coming back to your question at the very start. That was where I went from Livingston to Orkney. It was I, I wanted to change my environment and change how I felt. Mm -hmm. So I finished my undergrad and I tried all sorts of plant medicine, uh, plant supplements so I made my own, my own supplements I bought like instead of buying them from Holland and Barrett where they're like so much money I'd buy like St John's warts and spirulina and all the superfoods that you see that do have an effect but maybe not to the, what we think they do um, and I made all my own wee capsules and just like boxes of them to, I looked hilarious because all these powders where you're mashing them in if anyone Aye. had seen and then I, I found a job in Orkney and that, that's when I moved and I changed my environment and tried to figure out or unpack a lot of the stuff I was running away from but I think it's a mixture when you're going to find out how you're doing and get that kind of I think the doctor gives you another feeling as well because they have more respect and in, in therapists as well it's weird like mm -hmm. professionals and and it's actually my my hope as becoming a therapist is to re to really support other people to recognize that they're their own person and that they actually don't need professionals or therapists mm -hmm. they need someone as a sounding board to support them in their journey but that they are the master of their own self and no one else can really tell them how they feel because yeah, you knew sure. you said you knew seven years before you went exactly who, what was going on in your mind mm -hmm. did you take the antidepressants no so i'm i'm not like i'm not anti-meds 
but I am. <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a sense, um, because, you know, I found out very recently in the last year that where the whole chemical imbalance in the brain came from and, and the root of that and why we prescribe these drugs and it just doesn't do anybody any good. Like they have these short term yeah. boosts and, and effects on people, but long term they just don't work. There's no evidence for it. And there's no evidence to say that depression's caused by a lack of serotonin in the brain. It's just that that has came from the pharmaceuticals yeah, the because they had a drug that, that message. And, and they found that people but Prozac was the first big one. They found people get these uplifting effects for it. And because it boosted serotonin, they made the assumption that it's a lack of serotonin there yeah, that causes this. And when they've looked into it, they're like, oh, wait, we're wrong, which is just true about yeah. pharmaceuticals. So the message that I give to clients or whenever I'm speaking about it is see if you, see if you need it, please take it because it does give short-term relief. But it seems to be the combination of this short-term relief and talk therapy that brings actual change. change and if you can get to the talk therapy before you need the drug then the change will happen anyway and that's what i say to people because i'm I'm not a big fan of people being like just go and sit under a waterfall and just mm -hmm. do some deep breathing and wim hof and this is this is the answer it's like i don't know again i think that you're getting nah, a very like powerful a tool, but maybe yeah you're, you're developing a tool that people can use but you're getting this very powerful placebo effect by doing these activities. And my worry is, is that long-term, you're not going to get the relief that you want. And I definitely have experienced that myself with like health and fitness, where mm -hmm. when I threw myself into the gym, I found this real big boost that came. Body image was improved. My diet improved. So inflammation markers, I'm surely all these things that we're talking about where we don't really understand truly the depth of the impact, but then five to six years later, I found myself being faced with the same insecurities, mm. the same depression, the same anxiety about my future. Yeah. And the gym did nothing for it after that point because, again, that sort of uplifting effect yeah. I got for that had went into just... We spoke about it recently routine. when it comes to... I'm, I'm medicated at the minute. I've been for about seven or eight weeks. But again, that was very much like something that I felt was necessary. We spoke last week about, obviously, my sort of burgeoning journey and area therapist and stuff like that. Um, and I do feel like the progress has helped, like in terms of what we spoke about in the past. Is I've had that very like immediate usefulness for antidepressants in the sort of dark doldrums that where you just had to feel something. Um, but I've never up until this time kind of like followed it up with that step you're talking about, where you actually like speak it out and whatever else. And I, I do feel different this time as a result of it. But even in the last few times, I've been quite restrictive with how I've used antidepressants because. I would, and you'll know as yourself, I go like three, maybe four months tops and then I'm like, right, if I hit the three month mark, I'm starting to taper off because I don't see them, like you say, like as a long-term solution. Like, yeah. They're prescribed on repeat ad infinitum. And it's kind of like the thing where, you know, we, we spoke to the guys like Loki where folk are on methadone for 20 years and you're like, how has that helped them mm -hmm. like escape for the hell of their addiction? All you've really done is like modify their addiction. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, and I think that, know that I would say you're addicted to antidepressants, but at the point where you're no longer feeling that and you can feel right. it, the felt with the you feel the difference that it makes in you, mm. it's time to be like, right, here's where we now start to taper off on that and start mm. to ramp up on my men's group or the therapy yeah. or any of these other things. Mm. But I think it is a very useful tool in the short term. But For I sure. think there it needs to be media, there needs to be media focus on it that it's a short term uh -huh. solution. It saves life. Shouldn't man. it be I don't think it was eighteen months on 
whatever what a master talapram. I don't think that's something that yeah. eighteen months from now I'm going to be getting the benefit that I'm getting for it. Yeah, the yeah for sure, man. Like I say, Delman, it saves lives, and that's why I would never ever be like pure. Oh, I'm no one, I'm no troping, and you see a lot of people doing this like oh they're they're conning you with it, and it, it has a real impact on people, and, and I see that day to day. But again, it it's. I think that it's it comes back to a solution because you'll be back where you're like you're saying yeah. a couple of years later with the same questions and the same There's issues no that you've no addressed. That happens. Like you either need to change your ideas and your perspective on stuff or sometimes you need to look at your life and actually change it. Yeah. And I think that that's the bit that people they're getting lost and I feel like that's a failing of the health system. I don't think it's a failing of the individuals that work within the health system mm. or been doctors for 20 years and no blame going to GPs like they don't know how to therapy people and actually the therapy that they've got is f very restricted there's a nine month wait and when people get it they get four sessions of 45 minutes it's yes, not good enough like it is not good enough but there's a sense I, of like desperation when you're in the moments of wanting change in your life that I think antidepressants becomes that call because you feel or I felt like I just wanted a solution mm -hmm. because I was I think I was so used to doing a lot of things and, and that sense of productivity gave me a sense of feeling of, of achieving and when I was in the, the depths of depression I couldn't do anything so I was like I had so much guilt and shame around feeling like I don't know unproductive because my life was so busy and I was using busyness to prevent myself thinking about things so that's why it was really appealing but thankfully or not thankfully but I, um, I have family members that have had long-term use on on antidepressants that prevented me wanting to tap into that just yet right so i think it would have been my main point of action if i didn't have experience to know that that's not something i wanted to do straight away mm -hmm. but i understand the desperation when you want change in your life and you want to feel okay it's not even to feel better it's just to feel okay and i think mm -hmm. alongside that is momentum in life and therapy or going to the gym or whatever makes you feel okay to to make change and create change and then you can come off or stop doing whatever that's allowed you that momentum but if you don't have momentum, which the pandemic has really created in a lot of people's lives, it's broken that momentum. So it's then how do you get back to where you used to be, which is not something we need to do. But if people want to get back to how they used to feel, if they're feeling, I guess, despair after the pandemic, how do they then create momentum in their life again when it's been broken? And that's why they reach to all sorts of things from antidepressants to alcohol and drugs, because they just mm -hmm. want to feel okay within themselves. Again. Yeah. Yeah. And we've seen that again. We spoke last week about the drug deaths. We've seen this week the alcohol deaths and obviously I've been pretty open about issues with, with alcohol in the past and like that was one that I hurt to see um, that in the pandemic people have fell back on, you know, traditional habits if we thought, if you know, we can sort of phrase it in that way where their drinking's increased to a point where it's maybe become an issue and then and now affecting their health and now, you know, contributing to deaths on a scale that we've not seen in Scotland in a very long time and like I, I think we need to stop talking about maybe drug deaths and stop talking about alcohol deaths and just talk about substance abuse in general in this country because um, I think a unified approach to it is going to be much more effective than trying to like swat out individual files one at a time because right now whatever we're doing isn't working. You know what I mean? Like alcohol pricing and all these other things, you know, restrictive licensing laws and when you can and can't buy alcohol, yeah. uh, it's it's a nonsense. Lynn. It's it's an absolute nonsense. But what it's, education are we doing to like? get people run it there's you know what parallels. i mean the camera but there's so parallels between <laughs> like there's there's huge parallels between everything that we've just been talking about in mental health and, and that idea of um restriction and the 
if you try and ignore like these bad feelings or try and restrict them, don't think like that, get that away and reject it. What happens? They come back tenfold. Yeah. So if people are out there and they're gonna abuse a substance, bringing up the price here, making it taboo, making it illegal. I mean, look at the war on drugs. Yeah. It's done nothing. It's yeah. done absolutely nothing. It's made things significantly worse. Yeah. So it's exactly like you said. We need to take a different approach. And I think that the approach has got to be, and ask your opinion on this, it's got to be education. Just stop telling people that this is bad, that this is bad and this is good, mm-hmm. and this is bad and this is good. You can have this, but you can't have that. They're basically treating adults like babies and when you do that they've got a wee rebel we've all got that wee rebel in us that's just going to be like do you know what fuck you i'm going to do it anyway aye you know and I mean? it also increases the blame on the individual all these things because if you pr- increase the price or whatever you're doing the person's still going to have whatever they want yeah so they then feel like it's them and it mm. increases the shame and the guilt and it must be me and i need an outlet because a lot of alcoholics or drug addicts or any some anyone that's relying on a substance or a something to cope with life if it's overtaking their life and it's having an impact on their their sense of self, their job, their family, they feel a sense of shame. They might not know how to um, stop the pattern, but they feel shame around it in the midst of when they, they can't feel It just drives a cycle. Right. You so I mean? exactly. It's constant and it always lands back onto the individual feeling like it's them. And it's, it's consistent. And, and even when you look at people that are quote unquote doing really well in the world, we don't accept that they're mentally ill at the same time. Like, Look at Joe Rogan. I really admire him and I listen to all his podcasts that I have done for about eight or nine years. Mm-hmm. He is mentally ill. The way he is able to, and not mentally ill in the way that we would classify it in terms of needing to go to hospital or anything like that. Okay. But all all senses of, like if we think about life on a spectrum, the sense of addiction and, and the, the extremeness within his behaviours in certain ways. David Goggins is the same way. It's yeah. like the extremeness. It might not be mentally ill in how we quote unquote see it, depression or despair. And that's what we see a lot in the media right now, bipolar and anxiety. But there's a sense of unbalance within all of that. Mm-hmm. And I think like if the, I've always tried and seek balance in my life and I think it will be a constant journey. And I think mental health and balance are kind of hand in hand. And if you yeah. feel balanced in your mind, and that's not to say that his way of life is wrong in any way, but he'll acknowledge in himself that he's definitely got an yeah. ex- excessive mm. way of life. He's, he's a 55 year old father of two that's pumping steroids into his body. That that I, I don't think his way of life is actually healthy. Mm. And he sees it as this pure health thing. He's got like a array of supplements that he takes every day. And, and I'm with you, but you're kind of like, what are you doing, mate? There's imbalance. Why are you doing that? There's a complete imbalance in his life. Um, and he finds balance in so many other aspects of his life and he's got such a healthy relationship to like his his family, his comedy, his creativity, his podcast. He's weed use, but see when it comes to certain things, you're like, oh man. And just with all of those like, things in combination, you can't have balance because you've just mm, described so many things. Too much. So it's, it's just when I come back to thinking about people that are dying from drug overdoses, we we look at them in society as less than but we idealize people that are billionaires and that i shouldn't have said joe rogan because i really like joe rogan but like billionaires and people that are taking things to extreme and we idealize them on social media mm-hmm. and young people look at them and look at kim kardashian and people that have got so much yeah but we're not seeing them as like there's not an imba- there's an imbalance there oh, yeah and they don't feel great Literally. look at boris he's not happy he's not uh-huh. like joyful happy person so it just is weird we to reject me that these we're like, people that find that happiness because it freaks us out that we don't have it like when people at like ram das or eckhart toll or 
you know, any one of them come out, people are like, they're weird. Mm. They're weirdos. Like, and it's because they reflect something that we've not been able to achieve in society. So we, we, we think it is, is weird. And the one thing that troubles me about Goggins, <coughs> right, and there's a lot of men, and it troubles me about guys like Peterson and Rogan and, and a certain, like, these sort of, like, new age men. Like, they're bullies. Mm. They're bullying themselves into submission. It's like, how long do you expect to be able to submit to that, mate? Like, Goggins is get up. Get, get out the door. Shame. It's shame and Shaming themselves. Shame and they're guilt. Using, shame and guilt. Yeah, they're using these sort of like horrible ways of being that actually if you get a therapist, a good therapist would help you untangle mm. in your head and go, is that the best way to motivate yourself? Like, is there a better way to motivate yourself? And, and you can actually flourish within choosing fitness, not I, I need this. Yeah. Get up. Get out your fucking bed, you loser. Get to the gym. Lift that weight. That weight's not enough. Injured. Oh, God. I've torn my shoulder. I'm going to go to the gym anyway. The amount of times that I've heard like, Joe Rogan be like, I, I train through injury. You're not a professional athlete. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> Why are you doing it? But he feels less than when he doesn't work out. But and that's, that's the imbalance. That's it. It's like he achievement addiction. Less, yeah. These guys are addicted to this sense of superiority mm. and this sense of like, I can do it. You I can, can do it yeah, and you can't, can. and that makes me better than you. Yeah. And I've been there and I've sat and I've been like, Rogan, that is goals. Like, how, what does he do? He gets up at this time and blah, blah, blah. Why are we telling people to get up at five in the morning? Why are we lauding Barack Obama sleeping three hours a night and aging 10 years over the course of a year? Why are we doing this? It's, it's because it makes money. It's right. the, the most effective and efficient way to gain capital. Goggins is rich, Kardashian's rich, Kanye West. Kanye West is the most mentally unwell individual I've ever seen in that sort of place in the media, I think, ever. Maybe, I mean, of recent times, it's became very clear that Britney Spears, it's not that she's mentally ill, it's that she's trapped in this horrible situation. But why is she trapped there? Because it's making 20 people round about her a fuck ton of money and they will not let her go and be free. And... I think guys like Goggins, Joe Rogan, like they're trapped in their own mind. They're totally like victims of their own success. And it's hard, it would be so hard for you to sit down with somebody like David Goggins and go, you need to give that up, mate, because it's actually, he's got a best New York bestseller. I would even just like tone it down a bit. Multi-millionaire. Like why would he would be like, this has got me to where I am and look at you. Because mm. this is what they're doing. They're comparing themselves to, to other others. People. And then all of their followers, because they've got such a big platform, all of their followers feel they're they're probably never going to live up to that and then like you're saying they might get injured pushing themselves to that capacity and then feeling shit about themselves mm -hmm. all of this when it, i think about it all it's all internalizing for people internalizing shame and guilt because you're never good enough i think and a lot of it's actually internal internalizing quite a lot of toxic masculinity mm -hmm. and seeing that the people that are the richest on the planet are all predominantly male or exist within that male culture like the kardashians like they they are seen as the epitome of beauty and it's like it, it, i feel like it's all very male orientated mm. you know what i mean when you listen to the way that they speak it very much reminds me of my dad and that sort of like get up pull yourself up and i think we're starting to get to a more enlightened place in society where we're going that doesn't work like that's not working for the majority of people it's working for a very small percentage and like i've never really actually really considered joe rogan is sort of like mentally unwell but when when you extremes, think about it it's the extremes and, that, and it that just saddens to. me because we we group people in society that 
we can see maybe have a problem with substances and think that they're less than when they have so much to give, probably a lot more than so many people, yeah. but they don't have the opportunity to give or show themselves. But then we group other people that on the outside look like they're doing really well and you wonder who they are in their own mind. But they're probably overwhelmed, like that thing that you were saying about momentum. They're probably just continually going and going and going yeah, and going. Like and Joe Rogan his wife. behaviours are fueled negatively. Uh -huh. I, I, yeah, that's it. It's what's the fuel? And is is it positive fuel or negative fuel? And the negative fuel will run out because you'll just get sick of it at some point. Maybe not. There'll be people that can keep it going forever. But they seem very few and far between. But I remember listening to a, an episode of Rogan where he was like, you know, three o'clock on a th a Monday, Wednesday, Thursdays when I go home and have sex with my wife. And you're just like, Timing it what out. are you doing? I mean, she's expected to be able to just flick that switch. Mm, that, right. that isn't what that's about. And the expectation on her. And it's why is he doing it? Well, he's checking a box. Right. And it's oh, like, you're checking a box with your connection to your wife. Mm. That's good. Scheduling yeah. playtime with your kids and expecting them to be in the mood. And it's like, Going back to the flow state, like you need to let these things happen sometimes Actually. when you control them. It's like a caged animal, it's yeah. not going to like it. And you know, your kids will just be like, they'll notice that routine, they'll notice, they'll that notice that dad comes home for this place at this time and, and I need to be ready. And, and after and he's I done plowing, mommy comes and plays some PlayStation with me. <laughs> <laughs> Funnily enough, in that podcast, they said that how somebody, actually, I can't remember who it was with, and they were like, How do you get in the movies? Like, we have a couple of draws of a joint, and it just, well, yeah, it sort of like, gets them into a sort of state of like, now we can connect. But, but they, I just found that strange, found that really, really strange. And he's got such a big platform. I mean, when I first la started listening to podcasts, it was a long time ago because I used to run with podcasts and I used to do night shift and they were great. I remember when I first mm. discovered them, it helped me learn at uni as well. And um, because well, coming back to dyslexia, I, I learn better when I listen to things and see things and I read in sometimes, but I just learn in a different way. So podcasts really helped me. I would Google like sports nutritionists and listen to research and stuff. But what was dominant at that time was male podcasts as well. And I realized at one point, maybe two years ago, all the podcasts I listened to was guys. And not to say that that's a negative thing, but as a woman wanting to hear and celebrate women's ideas and other people's ideas, alternative to the norm, mm -hmm only listen to those ideas continually was not a good thing but <clears throat> it's sad that 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 is still the norm like if you were to i don't even know you probably know more than me but what are the stats on the highest podcast i, I wonder if they're just all you. like I, I don't know i think no crime ones are the quite new castle guys aren't they, they do millions every week i think it depends on what what country you're talking about but definitely in america it's massively male dominated and i think yeah, even in this country if, if we just take scotland as a as an example Football podcasts are king, right? They're all, I mean, the only woman that I know in that spectrum gets absolute dog's abuse on Twitter for being a female and having an opinion on football. Yeah. But uh, James English, he's probably like the biggest podcast in Scotland mm -hmm. of like an individual. And then you've got like Sean and you've got other ones in Glasgow-centric way. You've got like us and you've got like um, DW and, and they're all guys. And I've actually been speaking to a, a, a female too, but one who's way more down the line on forming her idea for a podcast than, than another. Mm. And I'm begging her, I'm like, please, like, I'm desperate to get a female voice in here. Yeah. Like, I'm, you know, I, I'm sick of, like, leaving this place stinking of guys. But it, it's no... It, that, it does that, regularly smell like arse in here. That, that's a joke. <laughs> that, that's a joke. But the, the reality is that, that the only female-centric podcast that isn't about sex because you know there's right. loads about female female ones yeah. that are about sex you know um right, yeah. I, I, you know 
I'm thinking about yours, and, and then I'm sort of going... Persistent, nasty, they're pretty sound. Um, Two birds, one pod. We've got this, the this. BBC introducing, but then that's not really a podcast, that's maybe a radio thing. Amanda, mm-hmm. but, uh, Mrs. Braintrainer. Things like Mrs. Braintrainer, yeah, but I think that when you go and, and, and you look at, I mean, I suppose we're, we're, um, we're, we're spitballing, but we could um, we could actually just go and look at the top and 100. What I, think about this, I quite like, like the, the end the end series. I don't know if anyone's caught that. It was, um, I can't remember the lassie's name now. She's a script writer, sort of movie producer type person. Uh, splits her time between sort of Scotland and Sweden, I think. Okay. And she started a series where it was basically like all women, mm. uh, different women every week. And one of them starts the story in week one and then has not name out of day with it. And then in week two, it was, they were doing it on Zoom or, um, or the pandemic sort of thing. I think there's a new season coming up. And it's all sort of female professional writers and producers that take a turn every week and they kind of like progress and take this basically random story in their own yeah. direction for an episode and then pass the baton on to somebody mm-hmm. else. And that so was if you look cool. at the top 100, you're probably talking about one in every 10. And if you if we then take out ones that are sitting next to guys, you're probably talking about even less. And why I thought about that was just because of like, what when I asked you guys how you're feeling about like the podcast, you were like, it's just normal now that you mm-hmm. do that. And that's probably because of your experience. I definitely have nowhere near the experience as you. But I think like self-confidence is a huge thing within women to, to believe in themselves enough and what they have to share yeah. with the world enough to consistently do it. I mean, I, I, I've really struggled with that. And I think like because it's just me as well. And have no one else to kind of like you guys have each other. I wonder if mm. that supports you both in, in a oh, way. Oh, for sure. Oh, there's there's definitely a part of my my mind that that feels less pressure because I know that yeah. at least half the time Matt's going to need to come up with a question. And if it was just me sitting here, there would definitely be more pressure. I definitely yeah. feel a lot more pressure. I think we've skillshared a lot as well because in the very early days, I just had absolutely no like skills for like cold approach or like reaching out to people that obviously you helped me a lot with I think in terms of how we like put interviews and stuff together I think there's stuff that you've picked up off of me and then we've went back and forth a lot which has been useful but there's also that thing that when it comes to podcasts like the in, inherent confidence in middle-aged white guys is definitely a factor uh, so there is like just as you're saying that on the okay. other side yeah women maybe don't or they you don't. that confidence for me crisis of that confidence came like when I when I approached Matt went let's do a podcast. I just came in. All right, <laughs> but Matt, it was almost like all right, cool. I let's do it. But for me, it was for watching people. I was watching people at like Joe Rogan and then noticing that these guys that were on these podcasts had their own podcasts and so went and listened to their podcast and then thought to myself, I can do this. Yeah. Like especially when you meet, you hear somebody where you're kind of like they're an idiot. Like they're talking some what what a shit they're talking about the subject and but. It was, I think it was inspired by watching other men on podcasts. Mm. And when, if you think back to five years ago, if we go back to 2015, when I think podcasts really went on fire globally, there were very few, very, very, very few. And a lot of it was like the happiness lab Mm. and very like uh, Helena Rifi, you know, like, um, what's Helena's podcast? podcast? No, the, the mental health hug? one. Oh, a sonic, sonic hug. hug. A sonic hug, like things like that that are very specific and what mm-hmm. we're talking about, like, um, you know, like 
women doctors talking about specific subjects, but were there a lot of women just, just getting talking. into a room and just talking yeah. and talking about society talking. and stuff? No. Yeah, and well, that's well, what well, I meant in that, that blog that I was doing because mm -hmm. it's so important to have voices so that people can relate to. And when I think about when I first started listening, it was like rich role, all men. And I always wanted to, to add something to the conversation. I always had different ways of thinking. And most podcasts I listened to back then, I didn't agree with a lot of the stuff they were saying, but I enjoyed thinking and hearing and learning mm -hmm. about certain things. So some of the podcasts I listen to, I don't agree with. Like I definitely don't agree with what Joe Rogan says most of the time, but I find it really interesting to hear and, and then think about my own perspectives on different things. Yeah, it challenges I, you as well, doesn't it? Definitely it challenges, challenges you. you to take a different perspective if, if, they, if they're convincing and they seem rational yeah. and they don't I, seem, you know, like... Um, a bit, you know, like when you see like Milo Yiannopoulos on Joe Rogan, and you're just like, he's just an extremist. Like these people are very reasonable, and when they give you that different standpoint, you do question. You go like, well, why do I feel the way that I feel about this? And I think that's really important. And actually, a skill that we're losing yeah. a wee bit as we just sort of curate our own sort of playlist of life and try and, and you like also save ourselves through it. You don't need to like everything about one person. Like, you, no. like we're so much more than one thing, mm. you know, and, and I think that when you see someone in a moment, you hear that in a clip or a tweet or whatever, and you assume that that's who they are. When we're actually like so many things in different parts of our life, different days, you might catch someone on a bad day or a bad moment. Mm. I remember mum used to always say that when I was growing up, like you don't know where someone's been and where they're going. And I think it's so important to try and keep that in mind when you're hearing someone on a podcast and you don't even know how they're feeling in themselves that day. They could be nervous, Aye. they could be panicking. Mm -hmm. And I think that coming back to like hearing more women's voices, it's so important to hear just a plethora of voices and hear normal conversations. And mm -hmm. I think it is important to have those curated, edited podcasts, but more important to have just talks because if you hear just edited podcasts as a woman, it makes you feel like, oh, well, I couldn't do that. So then there's no point of me. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. and then you, you just, you find that even reaching out to people I've found hard. I've not reached out to many people at all. If I've, I've talked to someone and they've heard about the podcast, like a couple of people have asked me, because I'm like, how do I set that up? And then Aye. I get in my own head about it and I'm like, there's so, and, and I think that's it because there's so to pick many it up. podcasts. I know it's one of the most normal things. Right. Like having just, I, I don't even know where the penny dropped. I think it was just practice all time, but I, I'm with you in that respect. But earlier those, I was like, how the fuck do you even do this? Yeah. Well, what, you know what, I mean? what, what would hold you back? What would, what would stop you from reaching out to somebody? Yeah, I feel it. Um, probably just my own confidence within that. And, and also, yeah, probably I, I would do it if I thought about it and I thought about the person. Because uh -huh. it's almost like I want to talk to people, anyone that I feel like I can connect with, mm -hmm. which... There's not many people I don't feel like I could connect with. There's lots of things we could all get. I don't know. What Obviously, I think that what I always sort of go back to in that is that it's so flattering to get asked to do it. Yeah. That if I go into somebody's DMs and go, look, I've, I've looked at your, I've been following you on socials for a while and I like your message and I've got a podcast, would you want to come on? Yeah. I'm always just repeating to myself, like, this is a positive thing for them. And if they ignore it, fair enough. And the people well, that's the worst that's going to happen to say no. You know? I think exactly. in the entire time I've done it, I can count probably on one horn the people that we reached out to that, that it didn't work out with. Right. You know what I mean? That's how I was feeling. Like everyone I've asked have said yes. I couldn't believe Peter May, one of my favourite authors, said yes. I mm -hmm. just said yeah. And I was like, are you sure? Like, I think the, big, the biggest barrier to that is getting to the person. Like, right. just by messaging people on social media, mm -hmm. you don't automatically get, get to the to person them. you might get to a social media manager right. a publicist an agent whatever the barrier might be in that i think that 
maybe I'm just sort of deluding myself, but that's why we've the few that Matt's talking about having worked out is right. because you, you hear nothing. It. You just yeah. you don't go, nah, it's not for me. I don't think we've ever had anybody reply and go, this isn't for me, pal. Sorry. Right. It's always either I've got so like with James Allen for Las Vegas. It, the first time I reached out, he went, I'm not doing anything for the next two years, mate. But I'll tell you, like, as soon as you see a post on my socials about us releasing music, come back. Mm. And it was like, great. And we did that and it worked out. Aye. Um, or, so, like, the timing's not right. Mm-hmm. Or um, that's really been it. Yeah. Or people, I've actually had um, a guy, it was a, a real shame. He's Wolfgang and, and he's in WWE now. And yep. he started in ICW. And that guy lived at the end of my street. And he, him and his brothers just they wrestle in their back garden, and now he's like going to the WWE. Crazy, crazy. crazy. And yeah. he come back and says, "I don't like doing these things. Mm. It's no you." He's like, "If you really want to go and search, like I've never done it, or I've done one and and I hated it. Yeah. And it's more about their sort of confidence. Yeah, but it's it. really flattering to get asked. Mm. Anytime somebody's came to me, man, you want to come on my podcast? Yeah. I'm like, fucking great. Yeah. Aye, thank you. So I just try and remind myself of that, and I think that. Being in a band for years and being the only person that was willing to take the bull by the horns and contact promoters and mm. deal with these people and realise that it's not a big deal to get rejection and all these things has just served me well. well I think in, in the time that we've done it as well, there's almost somewhat too much here, like emphasis on guests in a lot of respects. Like we did it more actively in the first, I would say, 18 months or so, where we're like, this week's issue in the news is, right, who can we get to address this issue? Or... Mm this week's album that everybody's talking about is this how can we get to that person sort of thing whereas like i think as we've been on we still have cracking guests that they included um but i think it's been less of the focus i think the focus is now for us about like who's going to come in and have like a good bit of chat about them or who's going to come in and have something interesting to say mm-hmm. and if they also have like a following or a presence elsewhere then you know all the better sort of thing but i think it's no the defining factor in, in how we or certainly no for me anymore. I think that I, 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 I I'm I'm with Martin. I don't know how you feel about that. Like mm. interviewing people and getting people in and going, Oh, tell us your story. It for me, it actually kind of feels like lazy. Mm. Like I, I I would love to move, especially Rebel City, if I think about what I was what the vision was at the start. Was to do that with my No, I was sitting about in the front room, the new having a blether, you know. Yeah, I mean, but, but doing what Rogan does, he doesn't get people in and, and spends an hour them telling him and him doing question and answer. They come in and he's pure every every podcast they talk about COVID, every podcast they talk about LA, homelessness, like it's basically themes, and I think that attracts people. Mm. Whereas I think the whole let's write up 20 questions, like for instance, I did that. And I've not even looked at my laptop once. We started speaking, we've no stopped, and we're at an hour and a half. So, I, okay. so I feel like this is what podcasting is. Yeah. And I don't feel like question, but like go and watch the TV. Yeah. See if you want to go, like if you want to go and hear somebody just mm-hmm. tell you what they're doing, or whatever, go to their website, go to their socials. Yeah. Um, and I think that perhaps COVID had an impact on that because we, I, I, my own sort of like personal opinion is is that we reverted back to something that was manageable when we were on zoom and Aye. having this type of free-formed conversation yeah. people interrupting and stuff you can't do that on zoom it's so hard no. so having that sort of structure and i love question answer podcasts as well but Aye. it's just more about i think for me it's about like what do i want to do yeah. you know what, what's my what do i want to do with this and that doesn't necessarily mean that other people need to conform to that idea that's just me 
about my own wishes. And what you're going to get enjoyment out of. And I think that's definitely what my podcast is like. I don't really have questions. And I think that that, like I have certain themes, like I have a wee list of themes. But I think if I was to focus too much on the questions, I wouldn't be present with a person. Mm -hmm. I'd be like, and I would get in my own head. I think that when we talk about flow, I would have disrupted flow if I have a list of questions. I usually just think about the person and what I've chatted to them about before of what I've heard about them. And then think about what we could connect on and just talk. And then it usually just happens. You know, um, like so what I enjoyed about being on your podcast was when I listened to it back after the, the fact I was like, I don't think like there was a single question <laughs> in that. And it was just, yeah. we were talking and we were just sort of bouncing off each other. And it, afterwards I was like, I didn't even notice that there was like almost no questioning happening. It was just yeah. that we were reacting to what each other was saying. It was nice. You know what I mean? think my worry with that is just watching somebody choke. Because we've had so many oh. where, well, not that many, no. but we've definitely had a few. We've had a couple. Where you need the questions. Yeah. You, yeah. you, you bounce an and idea out and absolutely. it just. Absolutely. And I think I would know how their to own change head. that. Like, I think, you know? I, I think that, I think I would be able to navigate it into something else. I completely agree. Some people really like structure. Mm-hmm. And Villis is definitely like that. He's a structure Q&A kind of person. Anytime we've done the podcast together, he's like, what do you want to talk about? And I'm like, oh, well, a couple of themes. He's like, no, but like, so he is, he's like needs a list. Yeah. So definitely, yeah. and that'll probably be dependent on what you like to listen to as well. If someone listened to my podcast and it had no structure and they enjoy structure, then they probably wouldn't enjoy it because it's it's all free flowing. Mm-hmm. It's actually, like, uh, the structure chaotic. that we started out with very early was, Something that I kind of broke ways with fairly like, days and like years ago and like TV and radio and stuff like that. And like, it was, I think one of the times when I was like, I'll write up this week's interview and then realise I've, I've wrote almost exactly the same interview like fucking 19 times now. Mm-hmm. Like we need to do something mm-hmm. else or we need to look at this another way. So I think, cause I felt like I got to the point where it was like, Hey Jen, nice to meet you. How are you? Introduce yourself. Blah, blah. No, tell everybody your sob story. You know what I mean? Like, and it got a bit, stale and sort of repetitive for me in that respect i I, I edit so many people's podcasts and you know i might even edit this out in fact none of them fucking listen to it so it doesn't really matter (laughs) but the amount of people that are like going to write the questions for me and it Mm. breaks my heart it absolutely breaks my heart because i'm then i'm going why are you doing it yeah what about the justin bieber he even he writes his own fucking songs right but do you want to be like the little mix of the podcasting world? There's, no dis- there's a disconnection there. Yes, and it's what, what, what are you wanting? And and it's I, I see when I'm editing it, and I hear somebody ask my questions, I die a wee bit inside. Mm, I genuinely yeah. do. Totally. I'm like, oh mate, like I can hear the disingenuousness in it all, and, and you can sense that from mm-hmm. a podcast. Like I think that's maybe why I'm drawn to Joel because there's definitely things I disagree with, but he's genuine. Yeah, and I mm-hmm. connect. I connect with genuine people for some reason, and it's not to say that if you don't have questions, you've not organised and went like. No, absolutely work. not. What you know, your, 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 your just, intention again comes into it, doesn't it? I like what you just said there, and and I've I've definitely went more towards that. Pick up four themes. You can talk for 10, 15 minutes on a theme for fuck's sake. Have some themes in the back burner that you know that the person's interested in and then just let it happen and see what happens. I think I'll I'll start to have a wee bit more of that and not set up the backup yeah. plan. Because at the end of the day, you can just delete a podcast if it's kind of shit and the person yeah. doesn't give you much. But, um, and redo it. There's always time to redo it. If you, yeah. Like I always say that, if you feel uncomfortable or you, you don't feel the energy today, we can redo it. And I can't take the credit, it was Billy Conley who said that. So in his book, um, one of his older books, and it really helped me with everything in life. Um, he he would say that he would never write jokes down. He would write wee themes. 
Yeah. So as soon as he stepped on stage, he would have like little slipper, umbrella, mm-hmm. just like, and then he would just riff off of the, the words. Mm. And I, that week I had um, my first presentation in my master's and I was like, presentations were my worst thing all the time. But I decided to just do what he did and I put bullet points. It was the best presentation I've ever done because some of our minds work differently and my mind works like that. That Like I don't need too much structure. I just need like the freedom to talk about whatever. And I think that seeing that and reading it from Billy Conley, it just gave me that confidence to do it. And that's how I kind of set up the podcast. Always just have wee themes so that, and trust yourself that you'll know. Mm-hmm. And you'll know yeah. it'll hit. If it doesn't hit, you're like, okay, well, let's move on to uh, What thing. does it matter? You know, it does. 500 yeah. folk listening to your podcast. It's like, <laughs> what does it matter? Enjoy you know when I mean? you do it. Like, I, I think that that's the reason I've continued doing it because mm. the feeling of connection that I get with the people that I do it with makes so much of a difference. Like, I would do it and not publish it. Because when do we ever get concentrated time, uninterrupt, uninterrupted time with someone? Like, the podcast is the excuse to connect with each other. So like even with Phileas, some of the conversations we've had, I was like, I'm so glad we did that. Even if no one listens, it's just. I mean, so Sean, I've got two episodes of podcast <gasps> that we never put out. And it's just the connection that you've had was, together. I mean, I sat and edited them and was sitting laughing like all the way through them and was like, why we no, Why did we not put this out? It's almost like the time goes like it, it, they were done last year during lockdown yeah. and it's just kind of like, you know, the, the time goes. I so can they put them out now? She done me with his own fucking bird, the fucking cunt. I know, I know. <laughs> like, but it, 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 I, there was no script to that. Yeah, you know, you there was there was a couple it. ideas, you know what I mean? There was a couple of themes and we, we just went with it. And I think yeah. that you're right, that's the best podcasting and, and and it's making me sort of like i think as we've as, as we've come out of lockdown i've I, I you know never speak for matt but i've definitely caught in this sort of like right now we now we prep get into the room you know and you get you just get through the motions yeah. and i think mm. it's, it's this is this conversation has been a, a real good sort of like reset as oh no definitely i i think we had it when we had scott in you know the first one in the in the, the new environment and stuff like that where it felt we sparked a couple of cans and it just felt like a, a natural conversation that's i much prefer it yeah. Yeah, yeah it's much more relaxed and you take away that moment you know, if you're just an interview that and the last thing, but with the Peter May uh, conversation, we, we ended up talking after and he said he's never done an interview like that before, but he really enjoyed it because it was like alternate, like usually he doesn't, and I said it in the podcast, usually you don't find out much about the interviewer. So I, I made a point of just sharing a wee bit about who I was, just yeah. so that, not because I think that he's interested, but just so that we had like a, a ground to stand on and, mm. and connect with each other. Mm. My favourite bit of the podcast is, or bits of the podcast are almost certainly like the 10 minutes before you start recording and like the 15 minutes after, because that's when everybody's actually got their gear done and you actually get, you know, as you say, maybe you know the interviewer a wee bit better and stuff like that. Definitely. I think that's what's missing in a lot of like British podcasts is just what Matt just said. People don't let their garden. People want to, they're they're worried about being cancelled, they're worried about this, they're worried about that. We've got to talk about it and we've got to talk about this, we've got to talk about that. And I mean, I have said some ridiculous things on mic <laughs> i mean sometimes i've come away for some recordings why do thought, we not have like a compilation of that i, I mean i've come away for <clears throat> other people's pod i mean there was one time in particular where uh kp gave me the strongest fucking coffee that i've ever had in my life <laughs> at like two o'clock in the afternoon and and i blinked and it was seven o'clock at night and oh we've been sitting there God. for four hours nearly five hours talking and I, and I came away and, and was on the train and just sat there and thought, I've got no idea what we what spoke about there. I went into a total like flow state and then started to think and then started to worry and then was like, wait a minute, just let it go. I was like thinking, 
text them and go, for that in there? And I was just like, do you know what? I'm going to let this Aye. go. Because see, at the end of the day, I'm not that important. And nobody's, and if anybody comes to me and goes, you were talking shit, I go, mate, I talk shit all the time. Yeah, like, this is the thing about Rogan we were talking about, is that like, I guess, you know, it's the common sort of figure that everybody relates to when you mention podcasts. So that's one of the things that maybe is both a positive and a negative for him. But the dude talks for like 30 hours a week. Exactly. Like every week of the year, three hours at a time, like sometimes two and three times a day. Like sooner or later, he's going to talk about shit. You know what I mean? And then that tiny snippet that you're talking about gets blown up into this big, massive thing because of the following that he's got. And you're like, that was like, whatever, 30 seconds, like 30 hours worth of content that guy produced that week. You know, sooner or later, he is going to talk about shit. You know what I mean? And we all, and it's your intention with it. If you're a good person and your intent, with most people that do podcasts, you can get a sense of their intent straight away. If they say something you don't agree with, you're not going to agree with everyone. You shouldn't change your full opinion on someone because you might not agree with one statement they say. Yeah. Like, this don't is, not this like is something that's present that. though, isn't it? It's this sort of all or nothing where right. it's like, I've found out that this person has got these 20 ideas that I love and connect with and agree with, but they've got this one that I don't, so I hate them. Right. Why is this happening? Why? I, yeah. I, I don't even understand it. Mm. And I do it myself. Mm. You know what I mean? I'm, I'm like, unfollow this person. They've said something do that I don't like. And then yeah. sometimes I do the embarrassing thing and come back and we fall on them again because I'm like, oh, I'm getting dragged into this. Never sort go of, back, man. Never go back. I think sometimes you need to eat, eat humble pie and go back. And if they if they were to message you, don't you, go, you unfollowed me and followed me. You're, the, you're literally the only person on Twitter eating humble pie. Aye, well, <laughs> follow again. That, makes, that makes me but better. That's, yeah. <laughs> that's your like, achievement, anxiety. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's okay to say you've done wrong as well. That's the coolest thing to come out and say, actually, I unfollowed you because I didn't like that sentence, but actually I like the majority of stuff you do because it makes us, like, working with young people, I've really become much more aware of the influences and role models we have because what's making them think stuff is okay and not okay, you know, in society. And if people are getting cancelled, the cancel culture is such a hot topic just now. For small things, it makes people feel like they can't even do anything with their life because mm. they're they're scared to they're walking on eggshells and coming back to why some people don't want to start podcasts is probably because of that how will people in my normal life view me if they watch that because if you're in natural flow like you say you'll say things you, you maybe don't know what you're saying and then maybe your mum listens to it your friend listens to it and they say you said that and you're like yeah. i didn't mean it like that because mm-hmm. it's all about intent really and but people it's a bit like art once you put it out there people internalize it in any way they want you know, yeah. wherever they're at in their mind, like Joni Mitchell said, like she, every single person that listened to one of her songs would take so many different emotions away from one song because wherever they were at in their life, they would internalize it in a different way. Mm-hmm. So it's a bit like podcasts. Your intent kind of get muffled into what people are going through in their life when they're listening to it. Yeah, yeah. it's got to go through their filter to make any sense to them. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. I mean, I would. I think we could probably sit here and talk all night, but I don't probably. want you going back to Stirling. Stirling, you're living in. I don't want you going back to Stirling and Russia, well, yeah. especially during COVID on a Friday yeah, afternoon. But listen, I mean, like I said, didn't touch one of the questions. I've really enjoyed this. Yeah, it's been great actually Amazing. meeting you in person. I know. Finally, I know. Yeah. Um, where can people find your podcast? I don't even yeah. think we. We spoke about the name of your podcast. Yeah. We spoke about it, but what's it called and where can they find it if they want to go so funny when you hear people ask you that. Um, because I'm not used to sharing it, it's just called We Stories With People. Um, where can you find it? Like Spotify, YouTube? Where would you want people to? YouTube? Get yeah. the YouTube numbers up so you can monetize it. Yeah, yeah, YouTube. <laughs> have you got a Patreon or anything like that on the go? No, 
I don't really buy me a coffee hugely seriously I, I want to do more podcasts but I think sometimes with work and in therapy training it's mm. like taking over a bit hoping to do a wee bit more as things ease down I think mm-hmm. yeah. well thanks for coming through and yeah, being the first guest me. in the new studio setup I suppose version I would say I was saying one th- 1000.0 on like Instagram because it feels like every time I come in it's like an entirely well, different 